the Convention Collective Sandbox at Portsmouth Comic Con 2019. Brilliant. Well, thanks everyone for coming. Um, I'd like to welcome James Lana. Big hand for Jamie. Thank you very much. Jamie, thank you for coming. Um, so I guess we are going to we are going to talk. We're going to cover your career. We're going to start with stuff that you've obviously discussed before. So apologies for That's retreading right. old ground. But I guess we're going to start. Well, let's think where we should start. I guess we could start with, you know, maybe your Marvel UK stuff. You are starting at the beginning. I'm really starting. Well, you know, you've got a pretty impressive career, so I just wanted to talk about how that came about. How did Marvel... Yeah, um, I was one of those people, I had an ambition to be a writer of some sort from an early age, um, but I was too bone idle, actually, to do anything about it other than scribble a few teenage angst poems and the odd play here and there. Um, and then I got a bunch of what I referred to as dust jacket jobs, the kind of things that everybody does and then expects to see, hopefully, one day on the, the flyleaf of their first earth-shattering novel. Um, luckily, I had a much more assiduous friend growing up in Northampton in the um, 1970s, Alan Moore, and he worked hard and got himself a little in entrance into the comics industry, and he said to me one day, Jamie, you want to be a writer, the best way to make a living at being a writer is have a go at comics, and he got me an introduction to uh, some editors at Marvel UK initially, and um, that was it really. Um, I've developed a, a fondness for the comics medium over the years and uh, continued to establish a career, but that's basically how I got started in it. I would never have considered being a comics writer if it wasn't for being a pal of Alan's. I mean, did you see at the time, did you think to yourself, this is going to be my career, or was it not quite as conscious as that? It was oh, just you were doing it... It was, it was the 70s. The it was the 70s. We weren't conscious very much at all, <laughs> let alone about careers and things like that. I was just happy to be able to do some writing. You know, I love writing, and, and um, it was all very new to me, comics. I mean, in fact, the first stuff that I wrote in comics was actually prose, um, which was a night raven series um, of short stories and that sort of got me started and um, then I was lucky enough to um, be able to write Captain Britain which was the first sequential work that I ever did a few Doctor Who's and things like that and um, gradually um, you know, worked my way in and started to really enjoy myself I mean you were a comic reader as a kid not hugely, no. I mean I read the traditional British comics, Valiant Victor etc etc and uh, read quite a lot of the underground stuff, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't a huge comics fan, which I always thought was a thing that maybe held me in quite good stead going forwards because I wasn't locked into that, you know, sort of fan cycle, if you like. Of, you know, I didn't really know what was what in comics, so I just did what I was going to do and hopefully a few people seemed to enjoy it along the way. I mean, Captain Britain was this very clunky, he was, just, he was created as this slightly clunky character. Was it Claremont and Herb Trimp, is that right? I think. I think it was, yeah. And obviously no yourself and Alan, you know, took the character and really did a lot of amazing things with it. You really, you, you know, you subverted, as I said, was this kind of really slightly silly sort of it, like British superhero that was like an analogue of all the American stuff that we'd seen, but you really invested a lot of, you know, Britishness, if you like, into the character. Yeah, well, my approach was to any writing that I do is, you know, what it, you know whether it's an, an established character, a stock character owned by a company or not, it, it's basically a soapbox for me to, you know, do what I'm going to do. 
Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't aware of any of the character's history, really, or anything like that. Um, I benefited again there from working with Alan Davis, who is a really good visual storyteller, and he taught me a lot in those, you know, year or so's worth of Captain Britons that I wrote. Um, so, yeah, I was picking things up as I went along, but, you know, just basically playing with characters, which is what I've always done. I try to inhabit a character and let them start walking and talking around the scenes and see what comes out of it and make a story. And um, I don't quite know how it works, or, <laughs> but that's, that's what I do. And so things like the Doctor Who, I mean, did you watch the TV show at the time? Not at the time, no, no. I watched Doctor Who in the, whenever it started in the early 1960s. Had you suppose. stopped by that point? Oh, I had stopped, writing, yeah, yes. yeah, I had stopped by then. I was a bit baffled by the penguin, if I remember rightly. <laughs> there was a penguin in it, and I couldn't quite see where that fitted in. But um, hey, you have to work with what you're given sometimes. Yes. So after so, Mar- so Marvel UK was great grounding for you as a writer. Obviously, it taught you to write, sort of you know, and to approach things in, in a professional way as well. To think, I mean, did you think to yourself after you'd done quite a bit of that that did you see yourself as a writer, as a professional writer, once you've done your Marvel UK well, work? Well, you, you can start to call yourself a professional writer once you start getting paid for things, and it's you know reasonably regular. And what that early experience, the, the best part of that early experience for me was the discipline of writing a monthly, you know, writing regularly, you know, having to yes. make something that was reasonably coherent in a limited space of time that you know, an artist could then take away and turn into a, in, into a visual story. Yes. And, um, you know, previous to that, you could spend as long as you like fiddling about with <laughs> a poem or, you know, pretending to be, but no, having to you know, regularly sit down and produce something with a start and a finish and that worked, hopefully. Yeah, that was great training. I mean, things like the Marvel UK stuff, the other nice thing about it was they were really, it were quite short, the stories. They were like eight to ten pages. Yeah, at the rather time. Rather than 22. They seem ridiculously <laughs> short. But I mean, did it give you discipline uh, to go, right, I've got to tell a story. I've only got six to eight pages. So you had to really boil things down in a, you know, in, in a way that you didn't have the luxury of, you know, 20 to 22 pages. Yeah, and I've always been fortunate in that I am, I, you know, I, although some people say some of my stuff is quite overwritten, um, you know, I, 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 I do like to boil concepts down to, you know, to a pithy phrase. And, um, yeah, it gave me that opportunity, definitely. But also... Uh, there's a problem that arises with ongoing series as opposed to one-offs in that um, you think, oh, I should deal with that this episode, but uh, no, I'll leave that, that can hang over, leave I'll deal with that the next one. And maybe, perhaps that's what keeps ongoing series going, you know, because you've always got something else to deal with that you haven't quite gotten around to yes. on that occasion. But I'm, I'm, I guess I'm going to move on to Hellblazer, which was a very meaty run, and you, you took a character that was a supporting character in Swamp Thing and you had to give him his own life and you had to flesh him out I mean what were the challenges for you as a writer taking you know this sarcastic scouse bloke who came up you know popped up in Swamp Thing made a couple of pithy lines and then sort of disappeared but you had to give him his own life what were the challenges for you? The challenge I suppose was um, the self-belief or the arrogance or whatever that I could possibly do this job you know I mean it was bigger than anything I'd taken on prior to that and I you know I didn't really know what I was doing you know I didn't have a grand plan um I was lucky in again in that um Karen Berger the editor at, at DC at the time in in charge of bringing Hellblazer to fruition 
definitely wanted a British writer for it, and I'd already submitted a couple of things to, to, to DC prior to that, which they didn't take up, sort of gritty superhero things, which I'm glad they didn't take up, as it happens. Um, and then they, she came back to me and said, would you like to have a go at this? So I scribbled off a quick synopsis for the first six or seven issues, you know, one line per issue kind of things, and got started. And um, I'm the kind of writer who tends to just, I just lock myself away in front of the screen and, you know, try and inhabit the, the reality that I'm creating and ignore what's going on outside of it. So I just, with blind, <laughs> blind self-confidence, if you like, charged ahead and unfortunately it, it, it was well received in the first issues and came I mean, in at the beginning I didn't expect that it would last beyond 12 issues if we were really lucky and I think we got up to 300 and something in the end not with me writing them all obviously because that would have been madness but um, I did a few. But I mean did you look at sort of reconstructing the character or deconstructing the character because Obviously, you know, having a character as a supporting is very different to having a character who can support his own title. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I had to understand who John Constantine was by my own terms, I suppose. Um, and that was, the, that was the task of writing. That was the job of my job. You know, I didn't, as I say, cold-bloodedly decide how to change elements that Moore had put in or work with that. I just sort of said, right, I've got this character. He comes from... He was born in Liverpool, lives in South London, is, you know, Jack the Lad, magic, etc., horror genre. Um, let's get into that world and go, mm. you know, and then you, you make stories. How much was, was there, how much was John, was there any part of John that was you through a particular prism in terms of his, his character? Oh, inevitably, his inevitably. I mean, nothing, most, anything that, mo you know, most writers put themselves into, <laughs> into their work, however however disguised and obscurely, um, you're there. I mean, you're powering the thing. It's your imagination that's driving it. Um, so there must be part of you in there. I'm not saying which parts of <laughs> me were in John Constantine, but um, I'm sure there were elements, yeah. Yes. And obviously you, re you returned to the character a couple of other times. You, you did the, um, the horror story yeah. with David Lloyd, and then you did the, I think, you know, the pandemonium graphic novel with Jock which I thought was a fantastic... St I mean, what is it about... Do you still feel... I mean, do you still feel a connection to the character? Do you feel, still feel slightly proprietorial towards him because... If I'm not careful, I do. Um, but that's a hiding to nothing, you know. If I worried a bit too much about what had happened to John Constantine in the last 15 yes. years or so, you'd be insane, you know. But, um, yeah, I do, you know, yeah, obviously I feel some sense of ownership, but... At the same time, I've always accepted right from when Garth took over from me um, after the issue 40 or whatever it was that he's going to be a character that's he's a multifaceted character. Different writers will, you know, reveal different facets of his personality. Yes. And um, that has proved to be the case. I mean, I haven't read every one of the 300 issues of Hellblazer and or the other incarnations by any stretch of the imagination, but I dip in from time to time to see what I can learn about the other writers who I mean, are writing I mean, them I mean, the stuff that you have else. read of the, the, of the help, let's say the Vertigo run, I mean, which ones have you found the most 
interesting or the ones that connect or ones which you thought actually you know they've got a take here that I didn't even think about as a writer no, I'm not going to pick any favourites or no, anything no, like that but you, have, but you do dip in so I do dip in yeah yeah, yeah so I mean I liked I, I, I liked what Garth did with it although it was a bit shouty and he made him drink um, he made him drink Guinness instead of gin which kind of rankled with me but <laughs> yeah. you know I had to sort of <laughs> swallow that and yes. let him get on with it and um, you know lots of people have done lots of good work with the character and um, yeah. Oh, they must have done, otherwise he wouldn't still be going and earning as much money for DC no, as he assume, presumably is. I mean, how do you feel about the character having a life beyond... Because obviously you've had, you had the film, you had the TV series run for a season, he's appeared in Legend of Tomorrow and there is a rumour that he's coming back on TV. I mean, how does it feel? Is, is it a slight double-edged <laughs> it feels, sword? It feels a bit weird, to be honest. I mean, I haven't seen the TV series or the cartoons or whatever else they've done with him. Um... That's partly deliberate because it was eerie. I watched the Constantine movie um, with Keanu Reeves, and that kind of. <laughs> well, I always say it's two two totally different characters sharing a name, but that beyond, they did use a few scenes from my early comics and things, and that was a bit weird sitting in your local cinema seeing stuff that you were dreamt up when you were stoned in front of a flickering green screen on an Amstrad, you know, in a yes. pokey little Terrasdale's back room um, many years before, and I, I didn't quite like that feeling. No. So I didn't bother going no, back no, there. You know. well, I mean, it was, weirdly, there was, a, there was an anniversary book of the character, and they got Sting to write an introduction, which felt quite odd, because oh, yeah, originally... We he weren't, was, but nobody was supposed to say that he was... Well, they had to change. They had to change it, didn't they? Because they weren't allowed to use the likeness. And that, is that why John changed the look of the character when the actual when the comic started? But, you know, I didn't really pay much attention to that shit, to be perfectly honest. No. I mean, the artists may well have had those discussions with yes. editors and things, but yes. it, it wasn't something that concerned me. I mean, yes. I didn't care if he looked like Sting or not. It, it was no. the interior of the character that intrigued me, rather than you know that's why I'm not perhaps your typical comics person. No, no, no. I, lo I love the visual storytelling, but how the character actually looks is not, not really the no. most important thing no. to me. But yeah, I, I did. I think I did read that Sting introduction, and I thought it was quite eloquent, actually. Yes. But I mean, obviously you did, um, you did a run Animal Man as well, um, which dealt yeah. with a lot of ecological issues. Yeah. Um, you know, while you wrote it, I mean, politics has always played a big part in your work. I mean, did you look at Animal Man when you when when you came on as an opportunity to explore these issues? It's, Animal Man again. You see, it's, my my career is largely accidental. <laughs> um, and Animal Man, my tenure on Animal Man arose purely because I'd finished writing um, Hellblazer at the time, and Tom Pyre, who was the editor at DC in charge of Animal Man at that time phoned me one day in a bit of a flap and said Jamie um, I've lost the writer for Animal Man um, if I got lined up I'm struggling can you help me out for a few issues and fill in and I had absolutely no clue who Animal Man was or what <laughs> yes. it might be about and so I said shit Tom I don't know I don't know if I can and he yeah. says yes you can yeah. um, you know I said right send me some stuff quickly then yes. and I'll and Give it a read so I thought, and okay he's a guy with. who gets animal powers what can I do with that and again as per normal I just started writing and mm. I actually got quite into Animal Man it surprised, surprised myself because I wouldn't have made, you know I wouldn't have assumed myself to be you know instinctively to be the guy to go to for something mm. like that 
but um, I found it almost relaxing after Hellweiser, and I, you know, found myself enjoying myself with it. And um, so, yeah, and I had, and, you know, had and still do have environmental concerns, oh, of and um, you know, when you're dealing with nature, uh, I, you know, I was aware of the swamp thing and the green and all of that, and I thought, well, you know, there's a meat universe as well. We'll call it the red and play with that. And, yes. And then I had this whole raft of great characters you know you could have a real have real fun with so, that's so it was a quite it's quite a contrast to hellblazer then as a it was for me psychologically yeah i mean i was hellblazer for me was quite an intense involved experience animal man was less so um so you know i, I did sort of feel i relaxed a little bit and sort of learned a bit more about visual storytelling as well with yes. that. and also i always love working with steve Pugh, so that was another big advantage but you've also you also did you did two very intriguing well you did loads of intriguing series but I'm thinking of 2020 Visions and Outlaw Nation 2020 Visions you know it was a very ambitious series where you got it was four different artists wasn't it to give you uh, it, it was a yes yeah Frank um, it, it was, was four different James Romberger James Romberger Frank Quietly Steve Pugh and um, Police Police Warren Police yeah and it was yeah. just it, it seemed like a very bold series you know trying to explore yeah that was these. that was quite conceptual for me. <laughs> um, I mean, I wanted to do a series of sort of near-future stories, near-future fictions um, that were standalone in effect, yes. but linked by you know a common genetic strand that ran through all the characters unbeknownst to themselves. And um, yeah, I just went just went crazy with it and um, enjoyed it. Yeah, and did you were you were you pleased with the results? I was pretty pleased with the result on a whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a shame with uh, the year 2020 now just around the corner, I mean, it was written 25 years ago, um, that there's not actually an English language edition Is of it, it not, available. Is it not in print anymore? It's not in but print you, in Are English. the rights back with yourself I have the I have the rights, yeah. And, I mean, I'm the, I obviously acknowledge the artist's rights as well legally. I, I so in owner. theory you could publish an edition Yeah, in theory, and I, and I would if anybody was uh, well, interested. If anyone's, and, anyone's uh, listening, anyone's here? Got the inclination and the cash, come I mean, and see me. He's got a great lineup of artists, it would be an amazing collection. I've got the black and white artworks available as well. It's all it's digital, but it's all there. Um, yeah, no, that's one of my favourites, actually, of my you know, personal favourites yes, of my work, 2020 yes. Visions. Um, and the other book I'm thinking of was Outlaw Nation, which is another. It was a. It was another very broad book in terms of ambition. It seemed like you wanted to tell a story that that was very ambitious. Yeah, well, that was kind of a. Uh, Stuart Moore said one day to me, he's another editor at DC Comics at the time, and he's um, now working with Ahoy Comics now with Tom Pyre as well. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, how they end up? Yeah, in the same I'm company. really looking forward to seeing. Well, I'm enjoying what they're doing. Yes. But anyway, um, Stuart said that it'd be really receptive to an ongoing, another ongoing series from me. And um, originally I wanted to call it The Great Satan, after the Ayatollah's uh, epithet to describe um, America. And I just felt like writing something crazy about America. So um, were they not keen on the title? Is that why They weren't keen on the title at all, no. Um, and they made some bullshit excuses, it being too close to Lucifer, which really? Mike Carey was writing at the same time. And I said, like, oh, all right, call it Outlaw Nation, I don't really care. Um, and, and that was supposed to be an ongoing series. Um, I just saw it as a, a, a big, sprawling saga, and, you know, 
like America, basically. Lots of subcultural stuff going on that I wanted to work with and exploit. Mm. And I just sort of launched myself off in my normal fashion. Um, unfortunately, it was less popularly received than um, was deemed sustainable after about 20 issues, and we terminated it. Um, but I'm still, you know, I look Did at it occasionally, manage- and um, I, you know, I find stuff in there that makes me laugh, and uh, you know. Did you still manage to tell most of what you wanted to say? No, probably not, because I didn't know surface. what I didn't know what I wanted to say. It was supposed to be an ongoing series, so I would have discovered that as I went along. Um, but that was the era of oh, everything must be sort of six issue arcs and so on and so forth, and uh, that's not kind of how I was working at that time. I'm not a planner. I don't like planning things too far ahead. I tend to just let the characters tell the story and hope that I can sort of keep a loose leash on them while they do so. Yes. So I guess I want to move on to your prose, which is something that you've focused on more over the last few mm. years. I mean, was that... What, what, I mean, prose is such an unforgiving medium, if you like, for a, or format for a writer, because, you know, if, it, if it's comics, you've got, you've got the artist, so you've got the synthesis of the, of the team, but with prose, you know, it's just you. I mean, was that something that you found refreshing? Did you enjoy that? I did. Uh, I mean, I pretty much always expected that I'd be a novelist one day. Um, that was my plan from mid-teens, I suppose. And I sort of started approaching the age of 60 a few years ago now and thought, shit, if you don't get on and do this, <laughs> it'll be too late, mate. Um, so and I wasn't confident that... I mean, novels is proper writing, isn't it? You know, I mean, not like comics. That's you know, anybody can do that. But no, writing novels, you're supposed to be able to do it seriously and understand, you know, all that clever shit. Um, so I wasn't confident at all um, with the first one that I wrote, to the extent that I did it under a pen name um, and self-published it, um, rather than submit it to the examination of agents and publishers and serious people like that and I'm kind of glad that I did because it allowed me to set up my own little imprint um, which also publishes a few works by old pals of mine who would otherwise not have a platform and you know that makes me feel that I can pay a little bit back to all the help that I've had in the past with doing things and um, I enjoy writing prose immensely and you know slowly developing a I hope an individual prose style in doing it um, I don't stick to many rules, but um, it's working for me at the moment to the extent that I'm sort of avoiding saying yes to any comic projects that I'm offered. Um, I'm very slow. I'm very slow at writing prose because there's no deadlines and no editors and it's all up to me. So it takes me a long time to circle the study in ever-decreasing circles <laughs> and eventually sit down and then it only takes one vague distraction, one you know, when family demand or something like that, and then I'll leave it alone for another six months. But, um, you know, it's what I want to do at the moment, definitely. You said you're not actually a planner by nature as a writer, Mm. but with the prose, I mean, you know, there are different kinds of writers. There are are people who plan everything down to the ultimate detail, and there are others that go, right, I've got got an idea, and I'm going to see where it goes. I mean, are you quite free-flowing as a writer? Do you have a character? I'm very much in the latter school, you know, um, I set the character. I get. I kind of know roughly where it might end. Yes. But how the hell we're going to get there from the start? I really don't know. I usually just wait for a sentence that seems to sum it up to start me going, and then characters walk in from you know left or right stage and start interacting, and 
then you think, well, what's my them interesting enough to appear in my story? They, you know, something must have happened to them, something must be going to happen to them, and it gradually reveals itself. But most of the way through a story, I'm setting up things rather than resolving things. I set up lots of hairs running, and then sort of two-thirds of the way through, I usually start to think, right, OK, so we need to pull that in, and that's why they were doing that, and it all starts to make sense. Um, hopefully, it makes sense to the readers as well by the end. I mean, are you, are you? I don't know where it's going properly until it's done. Writing novels with the same set of characters, are you doing a series or are you...? Uh, the first novel I wrote was you know, kind of a practice novel, I suppose, really, called Book 13, which is a um, not at all autobiographical story of an ageing writer and his large complicated family and the trouble he has managing their plot lines and uh, resolving their lives for them. Um, not at all autobiographical. You know, nothing in it is true, I have to say, for legal reasons. Um, after I'd done that, I decided I'd try something a little bit more genre and um, invented this near-future alternate reality called England, which is I-N-G-L-U-N-D, just to distinguish it from the one that we have to live in. Um, and uh, a cranky old guy called Lepus, who lives in it and who may or may not have been a writer once in a former incarnation. Um, and it's kind of a, to me, it's an anarchist utopia. Other people would call it a near-future near dystopia. But I just enjoy romping about through through this thing that I've created. It's all mine. And um, I'm having a great time with it. And I'm circling in. I'm writing the third novel in that series at the moment. And I um, expect there to be a few more. Yes. I mean, how many drafts do you normally go through for your novels? I don't work in drafts. You don't? No. Um, some people will do that, yeah. Bash, bash off a first draft or yes. whatever. But I, I can't do that. I edit it constantly as I go oh, along. Oh, really? So for the first four or five chapters at least, I'm virtually starting from the beginning every time I sit down at the computer. Blimey. Or, you know, I'll write a chapter and then that evening when I'm stoned before I go to bed or before I play poker online, um, I'll rework through it and, you know, fix things, just mm. tweak here and there. And that is an ongoing process throughout the whole job. Um, I don't want to know where it, how it's going to end or properly how we're going to get there until I do. So, you know, as I say, it's snowballing, but gradually building it up until, it, until it's working for me, until it sounds nice in my head. That's the most important thing to me. I'm not a great plot guy. I like the sound of words and the rhythm of words, and that's what makes me do it. Do you read your dialogue out? Because I know that some writers do this, where they've written a line of dialogue or, and they sort of act it out. I've got I mean, it in my head. I'm not doing it. But you wouldn't it read it, but no. But I did do an audio version of the first Lepus book where I had to read all the dialogue out. And it really taught me not to do another one, basically, <laughs> because I'm not, a, I'm not a good enough voice actor. You have to, to enunciate a lot more clearly, obviously, don't you? And yeah, and also I tend to put stupid accents in things, which really? I can't actually do. <laughs> you know, so, um, well, if anybody wants to hear how bad it is, um, if you go to my Leapers Books website, you can download it for nothing. Um, it's a free gift to the world. Um, but it's, uh, it's not a professional audio book. It sounds okay. It sounds okay. I'm not saying it's terrible, but um, 
you know, I'm not, like I say, not good with accents and acting generally. But yeah, so in that respect, yes, I have had to, and there are, when you do do that, I mean, it's always a good good tactic as a writer to, to read prose out loud to yourself after you've written it, just because you pick up much more, ed many more copy editing errors and things like that if you do that. I mean, I still read, if I look through the novels, two years after they're written, I still keep finding punctuation errors and things like that that infuriate the fuck out of you. But um, hey-ho, nothing's perfect. Yes. So, I mean, I guess... Well, I mean, I want to ask that the idea, you know, writer, writers have personas, you know, whether, whether it's conscious or not. You know, if you're at a show, if you're in public, you, you sort of either consciously or unconsciously create sort of like a persona for yourself as a Your writer. Twitter I mean, character. Yes. Or, I mean, how do you feel... I mean, some people do it consciously, some people do it well, other people have, you know, they have a different persona at home, for example, than they do if they're at a show. I mean, what, I mean how do you feel about that? Do I feel about it? I, I mean, I'm, I, perhaps I have a persona that I put on at shows and things. I tend to be a, see myself really as a relatively grumpy, shuffling old bugger, both at home and at work and out and about in the world. I don't think I change my personality that much. No. You know, um... How do I feel about that? Oh, you do what you do. Some people are the product, aren't they? Yes. I mean, this tends to... And I find this increasingly with, um, you know, the 21st century has given everybody this ability to be able to, you know, to produce work, writing work particularly, um, and put it out there to the world in general yes. without the necessity for all the traditional gatekeepers getting to it first, which, you know, on one level is an absolutely great thing. And on another level, I'm slightly not so sure about. Yes. Because there's an awful lot of books out there now. You know, and some that are available. Have been some of them are great. Yes, and yes. Some of them aren't. Um, but, sorry, what were we talking about? It's about, about persona, the idea of a. Yeah, a but I, I think that, you know, there's an awful lot of people out there sort of writing their, their 99p Amazon Create Space <laughs> thing yes. and then attaching a blog to it and flogging themselves rather than the book. As a figure. Rather than like the work a, that yeah. they've done, but rather than. This is this is me, so and so and so and so. The writer, I wrote this thing. You can buy it for a mm. quid, but just look at my blog, um, and I'll you know entertain you a little bit. And yes. you know, I, I'm kind of a bit dubious about that, but you know, is it the nature I don't know, of the it's beast? It's not my now. world now. I you know, it's no, changing, no. isn't it? Yes. Everything's different. And I guess I want to talk to you about politics just because you? it's always been a kind sure? of narrow vein. No, I, I always <laughs> find it fascinating to talk to you about politics. I mean, is it? Is it still the artist's role to sort of shine a light on, on politics and on certain, you know, things that agree with you? I mean, it's, it's been a major part of your writing, and it's, uh, say that, you know, as a... As, well, as people a, say this. People say, oh, James, you're a political writer. I'm not, really. But the only thing that gets me going as a writer is the world that I live in, whether I'm writing some ridiculous fantasy version of it or not. There's human truths... Yes. Um, truths of human existence that, that, you know, they're what I'm interested in, you know, in writing about, in, in, in imbuing my characters with. I want them to be, you know, true people, you yes. know, and have all the hopes and fears and things that we all do and have to endure difficulties in the world as we all do. Um, so, you know, I'm only a political writer to that extent. I'm, I, I hope I'm never a proselytising writer, you know, preaching a particular brand of politics. I have my own sympathies and they will be apparent. But, um, you know, I'm not saying, 
This is the way it should be. Yeah, this is the no, way it no. should be. I'm interested in how it gets to wherever it is mm. at that moment. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 there's been a lot of discussion about <coughs> these, you know, characters who are, you know, they're, they're, they're you know, three-dimensional characters, but they have flaws and they have attitudes that people are not comfortable with. And then there's been, you know, there has been discussion, you know, about them coming across as kind of unpalatable. I'm sure you've seen this discussion. I haven't because I don't see a lot of discussion. This isn't even so comics. This is also sketch this me is, in, this sketch is, this me is novels in as well. Certain characters, they're not happy because they hold attitudes that people find unpalatable. And it's going back to sort of Victorian novels or even things like Huckleberry Finn. Oh, okay, what you mean? <laughs> this the, is the thing the, about they're out of the, yeah, kind of rewriting history for like right, retrofitting. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I've always thought, you know, that these people are, you know, the characters are there to kind of shine the light and act as a prism for attitudes that, that we don't like. You know, I mean, and well, it's, there's not to say that the writer agrees with the attitudes, but it's, it's well, important Well, they probably did when they wrote it. They probably, you know, they're snapshots in time, aren't they? They're, yes. You know, they're cultural, prevailing cultural attitudes of a, a historical period. Yes. The, the trick is to be able to, you know, you can read that stuff and read it as, as some of it as great literature or entertaining crime fiction or, or you know, or whatever it is. You, but you don't have to buy into the whole no, deal, you know. Yes. You, you just say, right, okay. Whoever, These people are racist. Know, Bulldog Drummond was a racist yes. fuckwit, but he yes. wrote some really yes. <laughs> interesting yes. sapper novels in the 1930s. But he was coming, you know, yes. between the wars and you know Nazism was on the yes. rise yes. in Europe, and he had some sympathies. That, but you know, and whoever else you want to pick, yes, um, they're not necessarily nice people. No, you know, but they can write. You yes. know. I mean, is it about separating the art from the artist sometimes, which is sometimes very difficult? Well, just accepting it as something that they did. Yes. And, but now we're in a different place. I'm a yes. different person to whoever yes. it was who wrote that. Yes. I can still, you know, uh, it's still of interest to me to read it, maybe, mm. because it's describing a world that I don't know, yes. that I wasn't in. Um, I just read... Um, a novel by a lady called Melissa Harrison called All Among the Barley, yes. which is set in the, from the point of view of a 14-year-old girl in rural Suffolk um, in the ni- early 1930s. Um, and uh, there's sort of political agitators going out around the farms, yes. sort of trying to raise sympathies for fascism, basically. You know, and, but it's all set through her. You know, and that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's slightly different to reading something that was written contemporaneously, but... Um, but the principle's you know, the but, same, though. Yeah, the, the thing's the way, there, yes. you know, it's acknowledging that that was part of the world, and, yes. and, and your characters have a response to it, or mm. the characters then had a response to it, they are with sympathetic or not, but you can't ignore a historical reality, you know. Yes. I mean, would it be harder now to come up with a character like Constantine, you know, a, a kind of smoking, rather unpleasant anti-hero? Do you think it would be harder... You know, if Hellblazer hadn't existed and somebody said, I've got this idea for this, you know, sharp talking magician, Scouse bloke who's a chain smoker and he doesn't treat his friend very well. And, I mean, do you think in the, in the, you know, in the current environment, would it be harder, do you think, to create a character like that? Because people would be less receptive because they, they want people to Possibly hold Possibly because times have changed and, yes. you know, um, but I don't know. I, it, it just depends what whoever writes it does with it, doesn't it? You know, yes. I mean, if, it would be harder to sell, but if they if they manage to write three or four good scripts or something and then presented them, then it might be easier to sell. Um, the kind, you know, you can't always just sell or judge things on the high concept, can you? Um, no. It's 
you know, I didn't know that Constantine was going to smoke like a chimney and be exactly the way it was um, as I started writing it. That, that just appeared to be and a character trait that developed, you know. It, yeah. Yes. I mean, you're focusing on prose at the moment and you said you're sort of turning, you've obviously been offered, you know, the odd comic project. Mm. I mean, at, any, with the, at some point, you know, once you've, w- would you like to go back to comics? I wouldn't like, I don't know if I'd like to or not like to, but I'm, I'm fully open to the possibility that I will. So in theory, um, something could come up and you go, actually, yeah, I fancy absolutely. having a go at that. You know, I mean, Tom Pyre and his Ahoy comics, they'd like me to do something for them. And um, a couple of other people have similarly made that suggestion. And I've sort of said, yeah, I'll, I'll think about that. I'd like to. But um, actually, I am still a lazy bastard. Um, <laughs> and... I have got just about enough money to live on until my state pension kicks in in a year or so. Um, so the incentive isn't quite there in the way that it was previously. Um, but that said, maybe when I've written another Leapers novel, um, I shall feel the need to, you know, yeah, that'd be nice. I'd like, really like to do a 40 pages of comic or something. And I think I might find it actually quite relaxing after writing novels because there's lots of words in a novel, you know. Yes. I mean, how do you feel about your older work? You know, looking at it, say, now, I mean, what is your uh, yeah, approach to it? I was only just having this conversation with Kieran Gillen a few minutes ago who's yes. sitting next to me in the, in the artist's alley. And over this week, I, I very rarely revisit anything once it's written and published. Yes. Um, I've hardly ever gone back and looked at anything over, you know, I mean, I started writing comics in the 80s and I, I could probably count on one, one or maybe two hands how often I've opened up one of those books again um, to look at it. And I was just, I've got a few in front of me on the yes. table there and I was just flipping through an old Hellblazer and I said to Kieran, I said, do you look at old books and not recognise that you'd actually written it? So it feels um, like someone else has written these. Well, it was someone else. Oh, it was? Well, it was, because it was that long ago. Oh, I saw I'm a different, different person, person now, yes. you know. And, um, and that, I might have to look at some more just to remember who I was, because um, I can recognise my style of writing, but I can't really remember the details of the stories, the characters, why I put them doing, you know, what's this, you know. And, um, I saw, you know, it's fascinating. It's really in- interesting, but... You know, for me, writing is an on, you know, it's like one word after another until you get to the end. That's how I get through a novel, and that's kind of how I'm getting through life, I guess. You yes. know, and so I, 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 yeah, it, it changes. I change, and you know, my preoccupations change. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna actually throw it up to people from the audience. So any questions uh, for Jamie for anyone in the audience? There we go, gentlemen. I mean, as a script writer, I've always been a, a, a pretty comprehensive script writer. I mean, I tend to see a script as a piece of writing in its own right rather than mere stage direction with dialogue attached. Um, so, you know, I've always taken a certain sort of pride in 
making the script entertaining to read for the artist is going to have to sit with it for a month drawing it um, so I went to a greater and lesser extent depending on what the work is obviously and I think that my novel writing reflects that in that they're almost graphic novels without the pictures um, so yes there's description but it's um, you know I'm not really interested in the tedious minutiae of description I'm interested in evoking a scene and a setting um, I've got a theory that I mean it, you, in the days of the Victorian novel most readers hadn't seen very much of the world other than that was in their daily experience which was quite limited in the 21st century where we live now everybody's seen everything and beyond that there is so normally you just have to give clues and the reader's imagination will do all that tedious descriptive stuff for you um, so I tend to work kind of in that I tend to want to I use landscape and nature and things like that to evoke a mood more than actually describe a concrete reality you know and um, that's what I enjoy because I'm drawing the pictures then if I could if I could write and draw well I'd have been in heaven as a graphic novelist but um, in my prose novels I'm painting the pictures and that really gives me a lot of satisfaction I mean things like the, the Libras book it, do you think is it easier to critique the real world through a fictional prism so for example because that's a dystopian fictional version of England do you think it's easier to critique our society through a fictional version of it than just writing a you know a straight novel which would have been just a piece of, of regular fiction well I don't know whether I'm even trying to critique our society or anything I'm just things bubble up to that you know when you when I the reason for setting it in a in a sort of a, a fictional England as I say spelled differently is that it can then be kind of a weird historical English composite you know it can have medieval elements it can have futuristic elements and a whole lot can be you know kind of there in this sort of what could be just one mad bastard's fantasy um hey who said that <laughs> <laughs> um and and so that's the pleasure of that for me I'm not trying to critique anything no. but I'm going to draw on all kinds of things of yeah it's all coming into it because that's this is the world I live in it comes in through my biological receptors and goes out through my fingertips um, distorted in lots of ways that you know it's up to the reader to pick the bones out of so I mean apart from expressing yourself you know in, in the prose is there what, what are your other the other pro, what's, the, what's the rest of the pro I mean is it just to express yourself in a way which is different you know for when you were writing comics what is I mean what's the motivator for each of the novels I guess for you as a writer um, the, it was William Burroughs who described the word as a virus. Um, yeah, once, you, once you've caught it, you're fucked. Um, you've got to so keep, it's an obsession. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, you, you know, you've got to keep using it. You've got to keep writing. That's what you do. You know, I mean, it's it's stupid and probably pointless. in you know, <laughs> in terms of uh, you know the world in general, but um, you know, you have to do it. I have to do it. Um, you know, otherwise, what am I? 
If I'm not a writer, I don't do anything useful. I mean, my wife's a nurse. She heals sick people and stuff like that, you know. I mean, you know, I just make shit up. Yes. So I've got to believe in it. <laughs> We've got time, I think, for one more question. So anyone else from the audience? I guess I've got one question, which Go is on, a slightly loaded um, question. Okay, but, right. I mean, how do you feel about the future? I mean, it's an incredibly huge question, and obviously there's <laughs> lots of horrendous things happening. But, I mean, do you, well, how do you feel about the future, our future as a, as, well, I guess it's the human Curious, race, curious. <coughs> um, many years ago, I was at a comic convention in somewhere in Spain, and Sergio Aragones was there. Yeah. And I remember him saying something that stuck with me. And he said, the older I get, the longer I want to live, just to see how it all turns out. Really? And I thought that, that was quite profound, and it stuck with me. And, you know, I'll go along with that. Um, you know, I, I am a writer, and so I'm an observer, first and foremost, I guess, and an interpreter. Um, I mean, I'm very trepidatious about lots of, you know, strands of the political reality that we're, you know, we're... Yes. Engaged upon, and uh, everything is a lot faster than it used to be in the past. There's lots of old tropes resurfacing, but Sadly, you know, yes. in slightly different guises. Um, we're probably going to have to fight the bastards again, um, but um, we have to wait and see. You know. Okay, brilliant. Listen, Jamie, thank you again. Yeah, Thanks everyone for coming. Thank you all. Big for, for Jamie. Thank, thank you. you all for listening to my ramblings. Jamie, thank you. <laughs> 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 